Welcome to episode 88, Navigating Conflict and Polarization in These Trying Times, featuring Dr. Peter Coleman by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. Today, I am very honored to be joined by Dr. Peter Coleman. He is a professor of psychology and education at Columbia University, and he studies polarizing intractable conflicts and also basically how anxiety impacts conflict. And right now, this is a topic that's hot on all of our minds. Um, We are all cooped up during the pandemic and certainly living with people that we might not be accustomed to living with if we have um, our children home from school. Um, And right now, I think is a great time to hear from someone like Dr. Coleman on this particular topic. So thank you so much for joining us today, doctor. My pleasure. Thank you, Elizabeth, for inviting me. I'm eager to chat with you and share what I think we've learned from our research uh, with your audience. Wonderful. So Dr. Coleman, why don't you take a minute and tell us a little bit more about your background and then how you came to have this particular specialization that is so relevant to what we're experiencing right now. Sure. Happy to. So um, I have, this is my third career. I had a career as a professional actor in New York City for about uh, 15 years. And then subsequently, I um, started to work in clinical settings uh, in psychiatric hospitals with adolescent youth. um, And particularly the last a uh, few years that I worked there, I worked in a hospital that had a, a drug addicted population. I started to work with a violent population there. And what I became interested in is A, how hard it is to uh, treat people f- who have criminal backgrounds one on one. And B, um, what I started to have to do is de escalate violent situations because there were more and more incidents of, of patients getting. Uh, becoming violent, um, you know, the staff calling SWAT teams in to de-escalate situations. So I started to do that kind of work on de-escalation of crises. Um, but I became interested in a: how do you help these people? And b: um, how do you? What am I doing? Like, why? What's working? What's not working? So I I looked into research and I found that there was a eminent um, scholar at Columbia named Morton Deutsch who studied conflict and conflict resolution and peace processes and was a you know profound thinker in this area and a fund of knowledge. And so I went to Columbia to study with him. That's uh, ultimately how I found my way to this career. And then I worked with Deutsch and uh, took my PhD at Columbia. Um, and then when I uh, graduated, went on faculty there to direct the center that I direct there, which is the Morton Deutsch International Center for Cooperation and Conflict Resolution, um, which is like an R&D, a research and development center on, you know, ways of new ways of thinking and learning about conflict resolution. Um, and I've been there for, uh, I started on faculty in 97, so I've been there since then. Wonderful. Well, you certainly have a very applicable expertise, not only during the pandemic, but what's going on kind of in our country, really, with the amount of conflict and divisiveness. So given given your background, um, why don't we start by talking about really what most people at this point are calling anxiety or stress about what's happening with the pandemic. And let's start there about how you see anxiety and how it's playing into what we're all feeling as we transition to, to what this means for us. Great. 
happy to. So, uh, you know, I too am, have been sequestered here at home for over three weeks now uh, with my spouse and my son who's 23 years old. Um, and, uh, you know, and so we're limited in this apartment space. And, and um, so I'm experiencing myself some of what I, I would imagine much, most of your listeners are experiencing, which is, you know, fe feeling pent up, feeling sort of trapped and highly anxious about what's happening. I'm also in New York City, which is the epicenter of this pandemic right now. And so, you know, the constant sirens, the, the um, empty streets, the um, just this very strange uh, quality of life here um, is highly anxiety provoking. So, you know, th that combination, I think, does trigger in all of us some degree of, of anxiety, just the unknowing of this, you know, our, our lack of information and understanding of what's happening to us, how long it's going to be, what's going to happen af afterwards with the economy and our jobs and our, you know, our livelihoods. Um, so there's so much anxiety that's out there. I mean, anxiety, just to be clear, is a, is a um, you know, healthy, natural response to um, worrying, worrisome things, right? So when anything happens, we, of, that's of a negative or threatful nature or potentially threatful, we worry about it, we feel, you know, tense and, um, and we can start to perseverate on it. There, it. It's different from anxiety disorders, of course, which are more chronic and more derailing, uh, generally speaking. But anxiety is a pretty common experience that most of us have probably several times a day. Even just crossing the street in New York City triggers anxiety, right? Um, so what I've been studying is, is sort of the relationship of conflict to anxiety and how anxiety can exacerbate and complicate conflict and how, you know, when people are in conflict, they tend to um, respond, feel anxious and then respond in particular ways. So um, I'll back up on that because the, the research that we've done on that was sort of framed by this man, Morton Deutsch, who was both a, um, a social psychologist, eminent social psychologist, but also was a, a therapist, did um, psycho psychoanalytic training, did therapy with couples and clients for years. And one of the things he noticed in his practice, his clinical practice, mostly with married couples, was um, what happened when they would get into conflict. And um, he started to see patterns that um, he felt were patterns that were particularly problematic for these couples. And his observation of that was that, you know, there were certain kinds of, I don't know, styles or reactions to the anxiety, right? So he being psychoanalytically trained really believed that, you know, what was happening is that when conflicts would happen, people would get sort of overwhelmed with either the fear that they would sort of, you know, attack and harm the other or that they would be overwhelmed and sort of destroyed, you know, sort of kind of primitive um um, unconscious responses, but you know, whatever the reason or whatever the source, what he saw was that whenever couples would get in conflict, they would all get anxious and they would all respond in particular ways. And that's what he sort of saw a pattern on the pattern. Of so, you know, what he saw was um, kind of six ways that these couples split. Um, happy to walk through them. Make sense? Yes, please do. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, some people tend to become, you know, acutely avoidant in conflict and just try to, you know, do everything they can to avoid it. And others of us tend to become much more excessively involved. We seek out conflict. We look for it in our lives. We trigger it more. So those are two extremes. 
Um, some of us tend to be more uh, hard and unyielding in conflict, while others will be much more kind of soft and unassertive and sort of, you know, not willing to sort of put their needs out there. Some of us go right into our head and intellectualize and see it as a game and become abstract in what we say. And others become soaked in emotion and really believe that emotional experience is the only true response to conflict. And so, you know, again, very different kinds of extremes. Um, some of us get more, much, much more rigid and controlling. We want rules. We want people to follow the rules. Others become much more loose and disorganized and kind of spontaneous in their thinking. Um, there are several, there are some of us that will escalate uh, very quickly. So whatever happens, we start to bring in other topics, other people, you know, the history of our relationship. Um, while the others, uh, on the other side, people will be highly minimizing. And really, they, they know there's a conflict, but they always will say, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter, never, don't worry, it doesn't matter to me. Um, and then finally, there are people that tend to be compulsively revealing. So when you get into conflict with that, and one of my sisters who I love dearly is, has, is, is known for this, um, when you get into conflict with them, they will share every thought and feeling that they've had about you now in the past and in the future. So they'll really sort of perseverate um, and share, overshare information as opposed to the opposite side where some people just shut down and conceal and refuse to reveal anything, right? So basically what he saw were these patterns of these more extreme responses to, to anxiety and conflict. And he saw them as derailers of the relationship. They, he saw them as ultimately unhealthy responses for the individuals and for the relationship. Um, and he saw them, believed them to be toxic. And he believed that if he could start to label, explain, describe, share what he was observing with people, that it helped. That if they became more mindful of what they did, so so I became interested a few years ago in doing empirical research on this because uh, Mort's work was all observational work with in, with his clients, and so we started uh, to develop a scale to measure these six dimensions and the extreme reactions that I just described, um, and we've gone through a series of studies, a half dozen studies or so, with. At this point, probably over a thousand participants, where we've really tried to track, um, you know, whether or not his observations were valid, which they have been validated, um, but also what it means for people, and and what we found pretty consistently across these studies is, you know, what he suspected is that the more extreme people are in the directions, the more they in, in, over intellectualize or over emotionalize, the more they you know, become highly rigid or very loose and disorganized. The more extremes they go out on these dimensions, um, you know, the more generally anxious they are, the lower their levels of sort of well-being, their experiences of well-being of their life in general, the less satisfied they are with conflict. Um, and really the higher their level of kind of what we call negativity, right? They just experience many negative emotions. And of course, these things can become a vicious cycle because if how you react to conflict makes you feel more anxious, then you're going to tend to react more in the same way, and that will make you feel more anxious and more negative and you know, lower levels of well-being. So, so um, they can become syndromes, and particularly in days like these where we're tra you know, trapped and 
in, in quarters and don't really feel like we can't get out um, and, and are so anxious anyway, right? The, the layers of anxiety we're in are not just triggered by the conflict, but they're triggered by genuine worry about what's happening in the world and the unknown um, or concern with people in our life, uh, lives that are in trouble, that we know that are in trouble uh, in response to the virus. Um, and all of that anxiety builds up on us. And, um, and you know, conflict is sometimes the way people work that out, think, uh, you know, work through those things. Um, so I guess one of the things I want to say just in general is that conflict for many people is experienced uh, in a negative way as a negative thing. You know, the way we re review conflict is that it's, it's natural, right? It's a kind of fundamental component of human experience and human relationships. It's like sex in that way. It's like a, a necessary um, primitive component of our experience. Um, and that we, the question is not whether conflict is good or bad, it just is, right? We don't learn without conflict, you know, without conflicting ideas. We don't uh, grow in our relationships without conflict. We don't uh, change as a society without conflict. You know, it's these, these are, critical necessary processes for our relationships. Um, the question is when they go well and when they go poorly, right? When do you have conflicts move in a more kind of constructive way? And when do they move in a more destructive way where you get people dissatisfied, frustrated, angry, violent, et cetera, right? And that's the, that's the basic question that Deutsch studied for his entire career is what are the conditions that determine one or the other? Um, so what I don't want to do is equate conflict with um, all negative things, but people do tend to generally associate conflict with negative, with, uh, with anxiety and negativity, right? If you asked people, what are the top 10 things you think of when I say the word conflict, you know, nine of the 10 are usually violence and war and, you know, so conflicts do just can distract and, and derail us, but if they're managed effectively, they can help. Right? They can help us learn about ourselves, about the other, about our relationship. They can help us self-correct and make adjustments in our relationships. So that's an important message that I want to share. Um, and what we've been trying to do is, again, just understand the, this particular react, the set of particular reactions to anxiety uh, and how being aware of them um, can help us manage them more effectively. Right, so that we don't, we're not sort of trapped by our default responses, but that we're aware of what they are, and if we choose to, can override them. Got it. So, to kind of recap, you're saying there are basically six dimensions of anxiety, and when we look at those six dimensions, the people that fall on any dimension higher than others that aren't huddled toward the middle are more likely to have we'll say unpleasant experiences, especially in times of conflict. So here we find ourselves in a time where I'd say all of us are collectively anxious um, and we have different personality types, different dimensions. Where do these dimensions come from? Like, is this something that we, at least from your research, is this something that we are getting from family patterns? Is this um, based on our, our dominant temperament? How, how do these factors kind of come together to influence this? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it's a combination of, uh, I guess, you know, what we're hardwired for, you know, uh, uh, our predispositions. It is certainly what was modeled for us, you know, by caretakers and parents and siblings growing up. Um, there are also cultural determinants, right? There are 
big differences cross-culturally and whether avoidance is the primary strategy versus more expressive, aggressive, you know, engagement. Um, so there are layers of things. Um, so, you know, I, uh, that's how I would respond. I think it's a constellation of things that determine, um, you know, it's also, you know, our professional experiences, our professional training, you know, um, so there's a, constellation of things that contribute to why we respond the way we respond. Um, and, you know, the, the issue for me is how do we do it? Do we know that we do it? And do we want to, or do we want to sort of respond in more optimal ways? And that's one of the things we found in the research is that, yes, the more kind of extreme responses are more problematic for people. And by default, what that means is that more what we call optimal responses. So, you know, being able to think clearly enough to have a conversation, but also be in touch with your sort of emotional experience at the time, um, be able to share that emotional experience, you know. So some kinds of moderations along these dimensions are more functional states of being and they affect, they're you know healthier for us, healthier for our relationships. As you're talking about this, I'm not only seeing this in myself and in my loved ones, but then of course in my clients as well. You know, if we look at the last few weeks, taking um, history into consideration of who we know somebody to be, and then everything gets turned upside down. And so you have people that are normally super calm and cool and collected, and then they're melting down. And you have people that are usually pretty anxious, and suddenly they're hyper calm. Sure. Um, and that it seems it seems like it's it's really just turned our expectations about ourselves. Um, it, it's turned it on its side. And as you're talking about this, I can hear the benefit in people understanding where they land on these dimensions, because then we can basically come up with remedies, not just for ourselves, but then primarily for our clients. But I, I would argue that therapists need to know this just as much about themselves, because we're going through this right alongside our clients. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, my experience so far is that it this this extraordinary time that we're in uh, is turning the volume up on everything, right? It turns the volume up on our our sort of general tendencies and propensities that we exist anyway. Um, you know, my my son and I got locked into a sort of contentious debate last night about you know politics and well we got locked in a debate let's put it, let's put it that way <laughs> and again it you know and afterwards i reflected about well what what was what was going on there and you know again it is a time when we are going to be you know more often our more extreme selves and i think the more aware we are of what that means what that looks like um and again the the challenges or consequences of that you know it's also true that you know, as I said, I think there's something like 40 million Americans that suffer from uh, anxiety disorders, um, much more acute, chronic, you know, states of, of worry um, and tension. And this, of course, triggers that as well. You know, I have close friends whose, whose parents were Holocaust survivors. This is a re-traumatizing moment for them, right? So there are definitely, this is a traumatic time and it does tap into people's past trauma and it taps into more chronic ailments like anxiety disorders. Um, so it can definitely in that way be really destabilizing. But I would suggest that for everyone, anxiety is higher, conflict is more likely, um, and our reactions are gonna be more extreme just because of the conditions we're all in. 
Um, I've seen um, news coming out of China that there's been an increase, a pretty dramatic increase in the number of people filing for divorce and uh, in, in response to the pandemic. And I think you bring up a really important point there about, you know, our anxiety levels are higher, therefore our conflict levels are, are going to be higher. And we're stuck with the same people day in and day out. Yep. So I can imagine if we were under ordinary circumstances, even with increased anxiety, we would be able to distribute that conflict. Yeah. But right now we're going to distribute it to our spouses, to our children, to our roommates, because they're the they're the they're all we got the people that are right. That's it. That's the same faces that we're seeing. Um, and and I would imagine for the people that are highly isolated right now, that are living alone and might be working remotely, I wonder then if they're having more uh, more conflicts with work because it's it's the place that they could have it. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think you're right. I, I remember someone once saying uh, that marriages are are composed of us, you know, and so it's like raising, it's like it takes a village to raise a child. It, it takes a village to support a marriage because, you know, we're not only dependent on our partners, but we're dependent oftentimes on our friends and our therapists and the people we work with and others to give us other kinds of opportunities to vent and process and reflect and, you know, learn about ourselves. And if you're stuck in an apartment for three, four, who knows, months, um, you know, you've got one or two people there likely to um, to work this stuff through with, you know. So again, I, I do think that simply being aware of, mindful of the fact that we're all under these extraordinary conditions um, and that this is a, sh a very shared experience right now and, and that it's the likelihood is it's going to turn the volume up on everybody. Um, and... Um, and so we need to be able to give ourselves and others some slack and to try to name it as much as we can. So to go back to the conflict anxiety response scale. So if we were to be ranked on this and we could see where we fall on these six dimensions, what can listeners take away? Because I mean, even listening to the dimensions as you broke them down, I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm lower on that one, but I'm kind of, you know, I'd be higher on that one. Yeah. And I imagine yeah. listeners are having the same reactions thinking about themselves or thinking about their loved ones or their clients. Yeah. What, what do we do with that information if we're starting to identify? Yeah, I, I tend to respond by really doubling down and getting super rigid when, when I'm anxious. Yeah. What do we, what do we do with that? How do we let that inform our process right now? Well, it's it's a great question. Um, so one of the things I'll, I'll just mention is that we we plan to we have a scale now to help people be assessed on this and to get individual feedback on this. We plan to put that up on a website over the next month or two. We've been everything's been delayed and derailed by the pandemic, so we're behind on this. But um, so. But at our center, at the Morton Deutsch International Center for Cooperation Conflict Resolution, there's a website and there will be a link to this. And, and it'll allow you to kind of go on and self-assess and, and then to get sort of a, a printout of the, you know, your tendencies around this. Um, but again, as you said, even just sort of thinking about yourself or being at all mindful of what you're doing while in a conflict or immediately after a conflict um, we can start to ask ourselves, is this what I want to do? And what are the consequences of this? You know, and that's a sort of big question is, you know, when I got locked into a more sort of dogmatic point of view with my son yesterday, what are the consequences of that for our relationship, for our ability to talk through these things and to learn from each other? You know, does it shut us down? Does it open us up? And what do I want? You know, what do I want to come out of this? 
I mean, one of the things that I've experienced as a mediator in the conflict in conflict resolution is that the vast majority of people who come into conflicts, you know, who come into a room to have something mediated, really don't know what they want. They have a sense that they're angry, they're frustrated, they've been aggrieved by something that's been said or done or not done. But if you really ask them, what would you like to see happen in this situation? They don't know. They haven't really sort of figured out what is important to them, what would be a good outcome. You know, we don't tend to do that. Um, again, many conflicts are just emergent. They're just expressive. They're just like moments that we have. Some are more intentional when we need to sort of confront someone or, or you know, ask for a raise or something like that. Um, but it's the, the clearer we can get on, you know, in these when these things happen, and that they they do happen frequently. That it's fine. In fact, it's good that they happen. Um, but the more that we're mindful of that, the more we can ask ourselves, well, what, what, you know, ideally, what do we, what comes out of them? You know, does it make us closer? Does it make us understand things better? Um, or does it just push us away from, you know, each other? Um, and, you know, and therefore, do we want to, do we want to check ourselves? You know, because there, you know, there, there are these two ways that we process the kind of automatic reactions and the more systematic reactions. The automatic reactions are, you know, our common, our default responses to things, we can choose to override those and say, no, I want to, I want to respond this way, right? So we, we, we have the power to do that. It takes practice. It takes intention. It takes effort. It's much easier just to do what we always do, right? Um, but, you know, that's what Daniel Kahneman's work on thinking fast and slow is all about, that we, we can override our automatic responses and choose to respond in ways that are more intentional uh, and that, you know, are more preferred. As you talk about that, it reminds me of dialectical behavior therapy and the idea of walking into a conflict and trying to identify, you know, either before it happens or as it happens, you know, sometimes you're, you're just, you're there and, and you don't have time to prepare for it. Like you said about whether or not you're preparing for a raise to ask for a raise, or if it's just something that kind of landed in your lap, but the importance of really zeroing in on the desired outcome, like you said, so is it uh, your integrity? Is it the relationship? And that when we're very clear about the desired outcome, we're then more able to be strategic about the choices that we're making to help ensure that that might happen. Um, so I, I can hear kind of the overlap of some different methods and and yeah. and ways of approaching exactly this this same issue. That at the base of it, we're talking about how do we manage our feelings in a way that can be constructive with conflict instead of detrimental. Well, I think you're right, and the the, the clinical approach that I'm more familiar with is Gottman's approach to couples, right? And 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 what they've learned from their decades of research on, on couples interactions and couples in conflict are sort of, you know, a couple of critical things. One is that conflicts are important to couples. You know, if they're, you know, if you're living with another person and you're in a relationship and you don't have conflict, it means either you're disengaged, right? Or you're psychotic <laughs> because this is a human being, you're a human being, they're gonna make mistakes or do or say things that are unpleasant, you you the same, right? And that's part of the human experience. And so you're either just not paying attention and disengaged from them, um, 
right? Or you're, you know, as I said, somewhat psychotic. So, and what, what they find in their research is that uh, conflict is critical for couples to learn, for them to grow together, to make adjustments that are necessary and move forward, right? But what they've also learned, which you're probably familiar with, is that, you know, they have this uh, research paradigm where they bring couples in and they have record them for an hour and uh, having, you know, talking about a conflict. And then they, they measure their, uh, their, their emotional experience. Right. And what they find, of course, is that, you know, couples that have high ratios of more positive experiences over negative experiences are much more likely to not only stay married, but eventually thrive. Right. And their rate, their ratio is something like five five positive to one, right. Which is a tall order. Um, but that's what they find is that those couples tend to thrive, right? They tend to feel supported and there's rapport and there's trust and there's conflict, right? There's times when people say things that are confrontational or they're difficult to hear, but they have enough of a positive reservoir in their, in their relations to be able to navigate that and learn from it, right? So I think relevant to our conversation, the two things that I want to stress are that, you know, conflicts are, are critical to relationships are really important for us to be able to learn, but also that there is this kind of longer term emotional context that we're navigating. Right. And so if we're getting into these days of, of stress and anxiety, if we're getting into a lot of negative petty battles, we're depleting our, you know, our reservoir of positivity and that that can set us up for like a major conflict uh, you know something really difficult a threshold so we want to be careful as well in these times to you know be mindful of the fact that we're not only all stressed but that you know if we're starting to bicker and fight more and more we're depleting our capacity to learn from our conflicts and to enhance our relationships through them. I think that's a really good point. And I know other um, research points to the value of, say, novel experiences for relationships, that that can improve um, the connection between two people and that that's a really obvious thing that couples can reach for, but we can't reach for now. Yeah, you know, right. we, we can reach for a novel TV show. We can reach for maybe a novel recipe, yeah. but we can't go to an escape room right now. I guess they're online escape rooms. I just learned this, but we can't go to a real escape room. We can't go, um, can't go play paintball or go rock climbing. We can't do these things now. So I, I think the point you just made is really valid that we need to be mindful of how much we're depleting that store because we're not as able right now to refill the bank. Yeah, I think that's true. Or we have to be creative about opening up our closets and pulling out that stuff that we, you know, look, look, there's our ukuleles. <laughs> you know, let's pull those out and tr- give those a try, right? Those things that we've collected and trapped and carried with us so, for so long, maybe it's time to pull those out and have a return to novel experiences. I think that's a great piece of guidance that um, that is coming out of this, this idea that we need to be really deliberate in focusing on um, our our love bank, as the Gottmans would say, yeah. and making investments, I think, is really critical. Um, so, so we've been talking specifically right now about the relationship between two people or maybe a few people, and we've been looking at this on a small scale. I want to zoom out and bring you to an area that I know is also an area of specialization for you, which is the the more 
profound impact of anxiety on conflict when we are living in an America that is unbelievably polarized. So I'm just going to kind of stop right there and let you go because I know this is an area that you are very familiar with and how our collective anxiety has contributed to the level of, level of conflict that we see in our country. Yeah, happy to have been thinking a lot about this. Um, obviously, it's hard not to these days. Um, so I, about 20 years ago, started to become interested in this, again, in the sort of more extreme forms of conflict. So I got interested in intractable, long-term stuck conflicts that, of course, happen in, at the macro-political level, Israel-Palestine, Kashmir, you know, there are many instances of Northern Ireland, of communities that get stuck in conflict for decades. Um, but it also happens in families, right? And it happens with with work co colleagues or former friends where we get estranged. We are maybe physically still near them, live, you know, in the same family, but we just can't abide them anymore. And we move into these really intractable dynamics. So I've been studying that problem for about 20 years because the field of, my field of conflict resolution knows a lot about you know, how to negotiate for raises and how to mediate small scale problems and how to kind of work through most of our conflicts through. But there's a small percentage of them that get stuck and become really pathological. Um, and this current pattern that we're stuck in of polarization is um, a big complicated problem. Um, it's been with us for at least 50 years, depending on, you know, what you measure in terms of polarization, but there is a long pattern in some of the data. If you go back and look at how, for example, Congress, their ability to compromise and cross the aisle or not, you see really since the early 80s, uh, a growing divisiveness there that's reflected in the population and ref reflected in voting and reflected in like the Pew surveys around attitudes towards my party and the other party. Um, but you see this like growing problem. Um, and my, uh, my interest in working on this um, has been that it's, it's it, uh, you know, it's a major problem. I mean, you know, think about how acutely our political polarization has affected our capacity to respond to this epidemic, right? It's been, not only did it, it's been weaponized already on both sides to attack the other side for their, incompetence or cluelessness or for their, the sort of mercenary way that they're using it, you know, it, it, it impairs our capacity as a society um, or as a human species to solve big problems, right? To come together and unify and sol solve big problems. So it's kind of fundamental to our capacity to deal with anything like climate change and other, other major things that will come down the pike at us. Um, and this is, I think, a, a perfect illustration of that where, in many ways derailed by our inability to come together and, you know, um, design solutions that can help us address this most effectively. So I've been studying why that is and what that is. And one of the problems I think with our understanding of political polarization these days is that we don't understand it. You know, we oversimplify, you know, I mean, if I were to ask you, Elizabeth, what, you know, why do you think we're so polarized? What what comes to mind? Oh my goodness. Well, I think in my thinking about it, I recognize that it is so complex that I don't, I wouldn't even know where to start. I guess that's my answer. I, I don't even know where to start because I could, if I sat down, I could probably give you 
50 things that yeah. somehow seem to interact and relate to how we ended up here now. Well, you're absolutely right. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a very complicated problem. Um, and humans don't like complicated problems. We're not comfortable with things that are, you know, threatening, destabilizing, and highly complicated. So we essentialize, you know, and we say, well, it's Trump, or we say it's Fox News, or it's MSNBC, you know, it's the media, or it's, you know, social media platforms that are, you know, sorting us into tribes or, 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 you know, we, we are not comfortable with, that kind of complexity, this kind of complexity. And so we do oversimplify. And, you know, that's the, that's the scientific approach. The scientific approach that we've had for 400 years is when you have a big problem, you break it into pieces and you find the thing that's broken and you fix it. And that can make a lot of sense for some kinds of problems. But this is what, what uh, Karl Popper, who is a philosopher of science, called, this is a cloud problem. This is a big set of different things that are interacting in weird ways um, but they're leading to these patterns that feel impossible to change. It really feels like, you know, it's culminated to a place in America where I, I, I talk about sort of a, a, a state of American psychosis because, you'll, you know, there'll be an, an act by the president or an act by someone in his administration. And then you have two fundamentally different views and responses and reactions to it and, and narratives that emerge you know, we are in this kind of split personality disorder state, which is terrifying when you're trying to solve real problems, right? So, you know, one of the things I caution people about is not to oversimplify. You know, if you look at a lot of the books on what's happening to us, they will say, well, it's really that, you know, there are moral differences between red and blue Americans or, you know, more different moral priorities between red and blue or, there are differences in the threat sensitivity of our brains. You know, um, neuro neuroscientists say Republicans tend to be more acutely threat sensitive. So they tend to respond more to things like, you know, they're coming to get us across our border, whereas liberals tend to be less so, you know. So there are hundreds of explanations. And what academics do is they kind of fall in love with their theory, their variable, you know, and they write a book about it and they become more steeped in it. Um, but you're absolutely right. We're, this is a complicated problem. And so understanding that is part of it and understanding that we can't respond to co complicated problems in simplistic ways and overly simplistic ways. So that's my concern is that we, we misunderstand what we're facing and what, so what we, what a lot of well-intentioned people and groups try to do is they try to respond to the this problem and to sort of bridging the divides and bringing people back together with simple or simplistic solutions. So let me give you just a quick example. There's a there's a, there are many organizations that do this, but there are some media organizations that basically set up a website and say, go on the website, fill out a survey about some kind of you know your your attitudes on immigration or abortion or gun rights. Um, and then we'll identify somebody in your community and match you up who, who is opposed to you, match you up, and then have recommend that you go off and have a cup of coffee or a beer together and talk it out. And again, this is a well-intentioned idea. It's based on something called intergroup contact theory from the 1950s that Gordon Allport uh, generated, um, which was really helpful in 
sort of desegregation policy and really, you know, that if you don't have contact or experience with members of another group, it's much easier to vilify them and to think that they're all alike and stereotype. So um, a lot of these approaches are thinking just bring reds and blues together, bring, you know, Trump, never Trumpers and Trump supporters together for a cup of coffee. They'll realize that they're human and they're good people and things will go better. Well, what we're finding, and there's few research on this, is that the opposite happens. That when you bring reds and blues together to, and they talk about political issues, they end up leaving more stressed, more frustrated, and um, with less of an interest in sort of engaging with the other side. So that we get repelled, repulsed from one another. And based on what you said earlier, then I would imagine that simply contributes to an increase in anxiety and then a higher propensity for conflict moving forward. Absolutely. These things feed each other, right? That these are these are, you know, what we call complex systems, and they have all these feedback loops that tend to so our anxiety triggers our responses to conflict, and then we try to do these things and that makes them worse. We get more frustrated. We also get less inclined to engage with the other side. Because if you try this once or twice and you feel like, you know, they're idiots and they have no idea what I'm talking about, then, you know, you're not, you're going to give up. You're going to disengage. And that's exactly what happens in our families and in our relationships that we, we learn if we ask to have the trash taken out twice and the person doesn't or becomes an argument, then we stop asking. And so it starts to create this, uh, this, Reservoir. yeah, this, this anticipatory, way of behaving that then becomes just, I would imagine, systemic dysfunction. Yeah, and self-fulfilling, absolutely. We, we, um, so these are, these are complicated problems and simple solutions like just asking people to get together, again, is are well-intentioned. They're not trying to do harm, but from where I sit, they're unethical because they, they put too many people in situations with no facilitation, with no understanding of how to have those conversations. And you know, the reality, particularly in America, is that if you and me sit down and have a, a, a moral difference over an issue or a political difference over an issue and have a conversation about that, what we will tend to do is move into debate, right? And debate is a particular kind of communication process and cognitive process that is a closed, narrow process of persuasion. I'm trying to convince you that I am right, and I'm trying to listen carefully to you to find flaws in your logic that I can then use against you to prove that I am right, right? And to win the game. It's really, it is this really instrumental game-like behavior that we, many of us were trained in in high school, that we see our president, presidential candidates do up there, that we see on law and order because it's critical, you know, central to our legal system. You know, this is like a pervasive cultural response for Americans is that when there are differences, we move into debate. And um, again, sometimes that serves us. It's one way to learn. But when you have differences that are based on people's sense of identity, that are highly emotional and that are sort of deep for people, sort of meaningful for people, then you're not gonna debate those out. Those are differences that require a different kind of process. And the opposite kind of process is something that in our field we call dialogue. A dialogue is something that's often misunderstood. When people use that term, they usually mean, you know, they usually mean debate. They usually mean that it's some kind of confrontational, let's dialogue about this, right? 
dialogue is the opposite of debate. It's a process of, of, of sort of opening yourself up, of sharing your stories, of hearing other people's stories. It's not a process of mutual interrogation and questioning, but it is about learning about, you know, so in a dialogue process over a conflict, I may, you know, I may learn about myself and why things are important to me. And I certainly learn from your stories about what's important to you. And I learn about the fact that these issues are complicated, right? It opens up our understanding of those things. That's a fundamentally different experience from debate. But most of us automatically move into debate <clears throat> because that's how we've been socialized, right? So without an awareness of that and without some kind of, you know, support or facilitation or group process that helps us have those conversations, just sending people that are ideologically opposed and emotionally attached to, to those positions off together to have a conversation is probably doing more harm than good. It's it's really interesting because I can see these dual processes that are occurring as you're talking about this. So we're talking about, you know, two people that have very different ideological political beliefs, but then also what's happening in couples even as we speak that instead of having a dialogue and trying to open up communication to better understand, it's let me prove you wrong and then it just builds upon itself to create more and more conflict. Yeah. And again, you know, it does, again, go back to what I said earlier, which is, what is your intention here? You know, what are you trying to do? And if in this conversation, if what you're trying to do is prove that, you know, the other side of the political aisle, you know, it, it prove that they're idiots, prove that they're wrong, prove that you're right, fight the fight, if that's really what it's about, then have at it, if that's really your intention. If your intention is to bridge a gap, is to learn, is to try to understand, right? Um, or even be understood. If that's your intention, then it requires a very different kind of process. And it's not a process we're, we're very familiar with in this culture. You know, it is something that you see in AA meetings or that you see in like a Quaker meeting where people share, right? They share experiences, um, but they're not interrogated. They're not challenged. They're not, you know, questioned. It's, it doesn't, it's, it's not a game. It is a process of learning and discovery, um, but it's not something that's familiar to Americans. So, you know, one of the main recommendations that I've given to um, people who are really interested in, I guess, bridging these divides, or, you know, I mean, again, it might be someone in their family. I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're, as you know, since Donald Trump has been elected, there have been many accounts of families at Thanksgiving and holidays really having, you know, either not showing up, dreading, encountering one another, you know, so it, it, it seeps all the way down into our family lives, but also our community lives, our neighbors, you know, it, it, has be, it is a pervasive challenge right now. Um, and if people are really genuinely interested in trying to somehow bridge those divides, understand more about the other side, change the dynamic that they're stuck in, then they're probably best suited to try to find community-based groups and organizations that do that well, because there are across the world. Um, if, if, and if you go to the website of the Morton Deutsch Center, we have a, you know, a resource list of um, dialogue and, and, and facilitation organizations across the country that do this work, right? And they're, 
based on uh, empirical science. They're based on an understanding of the conditions where these conversations go well. Um, and they deal with all kinds of divisions, you know, religious divisions and political divisions, and, you know, uh, differences over abortion, differences over, over gun issues. Um, but they also, they know how to facilitate them and they recognize some critical things about these kinds of conversations. One is that you need to be able to create some kind of safe psychological space for people so that they can open up, right? Um, that usually that requires some set of guidelines everybody agrees to, and they take time, right? So the idea that you and I could sit down and have a pro-choice, pro-life conversation for an hour over a beer is a disaster, right? It's not going to help either of us understand or or change the 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 you know move us on that dial. These kinds of conversations over difficult issues, over important central issues to us and to our identities, um, um, if there's going to be movement on them, they need to be well facilitated and they need, to, they, they need time. And that's what these groups and organizations understand. So what I say to you know, media organizations like this one I've described that are sort of just telling people to go off and have conversations is, well, why don't you direct them to resources that can help them do that? These are usually free community-based services that are organized. Uh, one is, uh, I'll tell you one of my favorites is out of Cambridge. It's called Essential Partners. And they used to be called the Public Conversations Project. They've been involved in, basically they go into divided communities all over the country when invited. Um, and they, again, they, they begin by sort of saying, who's already talking to other people? You know, who, where, they say, where are the networks of effective action in this community? Who are the people, the clergy, the you know, politicians, the community workers that are already in conversation with members across this divide? And let's see how they do it. Because you know, it's, it's, like, it's like finding, it's like if you're gonna treat a patient medically, you try to bolster their antibody system. You try to uh, in, uh, increase their capacity to fight the illness, right? Well, communities oftentimes that are polarized have people that are already doing this. So the question is, where are they? And how are they doing that? And can I in, engage with them in some way that can help me with my challenges with, in my relationships and can help me move to a better understanding and better relationships? What you're saying, I think, is obviously relevant on so many different levels. And I'm even thinking of it therapeutically, that sometimes as therapists, if we're working with a client toward change, I think even as therapists, it's easy for us to slip into debate. Let me let me prove how the way you're approaching this is wrong. When we know from the research, in fact, when it comes to therapy outcomes, when we engage in more dialogue-based communication, when we're looking with curiosity and seeking understanding, not mm. seeking change, mm. that people actually change more. You know, that when we go into the research about motivational interviewing or mm. feedback-informed treatment, I, I can see all these pieces kind of coming together to form really what is this primary concept of like humans need to be understood yeah. and that that connection is is born out of that not being proven wrong or being proven yeah. right yeah um and i'm it's yeah as we talk about this i think there are just so many different layers Carol. i'm seeing that, that relate and i know um we have limited time left and this is something that i'm i'm really curious about so we so you know we started in this place of talking about 
our individual experience of anxiety and how it's affecting us, how it's affecting our relationships. And then we zoom out and kind of look at how conflict is now playing out, particularly in the country. If we keep zooming out and we apply this new anxiety um, creating scenario with a pandemic, based on your research, where does this get us? What, what does it mean now that we are faced with a common enemy? Yeah, thank you. Great question. Um, so what I had said earlier is that the, the, the problem of political polarization that we have here in this country, but that you see really across the world in many different, you know, certainly, certainly Western democracies these days, is that it's a different kind of problem. And that means that it's not easy to change. There aren't simple solutions. It's not just about getting together and talking it out. It does require that we understand them differently. And so I, one of the, you know, the, when I study intractable conflicts, uh, I work in multidisciplinary teams and I work with applied mathematicians. Um, by the way, John Gottman is a, is a mathematician, right? But I work with applied math mathematicians in our, in our group and we study these kinds of problems as sort of complex systems that don't change, that get stuck into patterns that last decades, right? And so what we do is we study the kind of macro level, we study, well, what are, what are the conditions when they do change? And the basic condition that is most important to disrupting patterns of political polarization like we're trapped in is what they call a political shock some kind of major destabilizing experience or event that destabilizes our understanding, our priorities, our perhaps our values, um, and how we treat each other, how we see each other, how we respond to each other. Now, what's tricky about these shocks is that they, oftentimes the effects of these shocks are not immediate. They, they take they, they, they trigger changes that trigger other changes and trigger other things. And then, you know, down the road, you start to see major qualitative changes. So let me just give an example. In the international uh, affairs realm, um, you think of like international conflict, two states at war with each other, U.S. and Russia, the relations between U.S. and Iran, you know, um, but there are many international conflicts. What they find is that um, when long-term international, you know, enmity of international patterns of, of rivalry, when they change, when they ba basically, when peace breaks out, they're always preceded somewhere between 75 and 95% of them are preceded within 10 years of some kind of major shock. So that means that, you know, Israel-Palestine, uh, who has been stuck for you know somewhere between fifty and hundred years in this quagmire of violence um, and enmity uh, could feasibly be destabilized enough not only by the war in Syria and the sort of you know t uh, chaos in their region, but also by this pandemic, which is shutting everything down, and it and it becomes possible then for things that seemed impossible before to be considered, to be approached and to be addressed. So all that's to say is, you know, there, there are kind of two simple scenarios that I, I describe where this, is, this pandemic is good news for depolarizing our society. One is that we simply begin to see that we have a common threat and that we band together to do that. And there's some evidence 
you know, the simple fact that the Senate was able to reach a, a unanimous vote on the on the relief bill is some evidence that it it forces um, us to reprioritize the nation, the community, our society, and our safety over political concerns. And so that that can be a, a, a very beneficial dynamic. There's evidence of like in 2004, there was a tsunami that took place in Indonesia and you had you know, a, a, an insurgent warring militant group that was attacking the government. They put down their arms, they helped groups, communities rebuild. And within a couple of years, you saw a peace treaty and a peace process emerge because the dynamics changed completely, right? So that can happen. Um, the tricky part is that it's not guaranteed to happen. What we need to understand is that this is a, completely destabilizing time, the likes of which I've not seen in my lifetime. Um, and it will disorient and destabilize us in many dimensions. Um, and then it therefore presents an opportunity basically for us to to reset and to choose a different course and to recognize that the divisive pattern that our country has been stuck in for decades is not serving us, right? Levels of anxiety are, are extremely high in our nation. The levels of suicide ideation, right? The opioid epidemic, you know, you name it. There's a litany of the pathologies associated with our nation right now. This, this horrible pandemic will destabilize us and provide us with the opportunities to reset. And so the question, you know, I, I think I want to leave your listeners with is, what does that mean for you? What does that mean for your personal life, for your relationships, and ultimately for how you participate in the political dynamics that we're all, you know, we're, we're all involved in to some degree, whether we disengage and let it be, or whether we engage and attack. Those are the two primary ways that people have addressed, uh, engaged with our political polarization. And neither of them serves our purpose at this point, you know, in, in order for this country to kind of regroup, you know, come out of the economic crisis, learn the lessons of the pandemic and be able to avoid this and other major challenges that will come down the pike at us. Um, we really need to be more unified and to be able to do that, you know, to navigate these challenges more functionally and more effectively. And that is going to require a major reset and now we have an opportunity to do that. So that's the silver lining. I mean, it's not solace to people whose loved ones are dying or who's suffering themselves. It's a it's a terrifying time, um, but it is also you know all times of crisis are opportunities if you understand them that way, and if we all sort of do what we can to start to move in directions where we um, intentionally reset, change course and change our own behaviors. And again, what I'll tie that to is what I was saying earlier about there are groups and communities, groups and, and individuals in your community that are doing this already. So part of it is who are they? What are they doing? Are they doing good work? Is it worth your time to know about them or to talk to them or to join and work with them, right? So there are resources, there are you know what, what we call positive deviants. There are folks amidst this political divide that are effectively being able to stay in communication with the other. It's what, you know, again, the public conversations project would say, who are the networks of effective action? So, so it starts with finding them 
and you know, and then saying, is this worth it for me? Is this something that I want to do if I really choose to, to uh, uh, reset and change course? You've presented so much information, both, you know, through the lens of the macrocosm and the microcosm that I think is is just such a fascinating jumping off point. I know I, I could sit here and talk to you for so much longer because I have so many questions about what you've brought up. Um, for our listeners, knowing that we're just about out of time for today, for our listeners that want to learn more about the things you're talking about, you've recommended obviously looking up kind of grassroots organizations that are local or national that are these positive deviants that are able to walk this midline and support other people in that. Um, how do our listeners, first off, get in touch with you if they'd like to, and what resources can you point them to, whether we're talking about, um, you know, the, the anxiety scale, or we're talking, um, you know, on this much larger kind of national or global scale of the impact of these conflicts on, uh, um, well, I shouldn't say conflict, the impact of things like a pandemic on conflict in general? Um, so I'll just, I guess I'll direct you to a couple of things. So I'm a professor at Columbia University. If you search that, you'll see, you know, the multiple websites that I'm affiliated with. The center that I kept referring to, the Morton Deutsch Center, um, uh, has a website. On that website, as I said, there is a list of these uh, community-based organizations, dialogue organizations across the country that you can look into. You know, they have some of them hundreds of offices. Some of them are, are big organizations. Some of them are small community organizations. Let me say one thing about them. To me, these days, the more the more effective organizations are organizations that bring people across the divide together for dialogue that then move into some kind of action. Because this problem is, again, not just about your and my misunderstanding and working through that. It's then about doing what we can together to start to take on the components around media and the components around politics and the components around governance um, that are part of the divisive structure. So it does, it does take that kind of commitment. Um, but so if you go to that uh, website, you, you can find those resources and more information about the research we do. As I said, sometime over the next couple of months, we'll have a website up, which will offer this, what we call the Conflict Anxiety Response Scale CARS that will be offered and available so that people could go online and do the assessment and get, you know, like a two page sort of feedback report on, 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 on their sort of tendencies just for something to reflect on. Um, and then the one other thing I'll send is, so, so I, I'm working on a new book on mitigating polarization. The book is called The Way Out. And there is a website for the book, which is uh, thewayoutofpolarization.com. Wonderful. Um, thank you, Dr. Coleman. This has been so interesting for us to start talking about, you know, that individual impact and then zoom it all the way out and for you to be in such an expert position about all of these levels. I'm, I'm really grateful for your time today and, and telling us some more information about this, because I think all of us are kind of information hungry to know what's going on and what does it mean for us? Well, it was a pleasure. Really, it was a pleasure. I hope to hear from your listeners and, uh, and thanks for having me on. Wonderful. Thank you again, Dr. Coleman. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.